Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. I'm Robin. And I'm Savannah. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. So are we going to do this uh, book report? First book report of Fireside Breakdowns? Yeah. First book report. I'm excited. Super excited about it. Super excited. So this is the first episode of something that we are calling Fireside Reads, where we read a cool book, then we tell you what we think about it in hopes that maybe you will also read it or um, in case we hate it, to let you know that you shouldn't read it. Oh, I'm about uh, reading some books that I hate, like if I don't agree with their um, ideas, because, you know. I think what would cause us to hate something, though, would not necessarily be, oh, I don't agree with these ideas. Because it's poorly written. It'd be more like, God, this Mm -hmm. was terribly written. Wow, you didn't have one single source for the claims that you're making. Yeah. You're just spewing nonsense. Oh, I thought we were just talking about, like, English-wise, it's poorly written. Oh, that All also. Of the above. <laughs> that yeah, also. No, that would, I yeah. would turn it off that too. I do have a list of books I recommend people not read. So um, I will. The anti-reading list. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> don't waste your time. Don't yes, waste but it. I don't think this book makes the no. anti-reading list. No. Uh, not at all. So we covered Invisible Women, um, Exposing Data Bias in a World uh, Designed for Men. And it's by Carolyn Criado Perez. And did I pronounce that right, John? Because you I don't know. In my head it was Criado Perez, but I don't know if that's like Wait, if my I... own bias, folks. I don't know. Why don't you roll your R's a little bit then? Criado Perez. <laughs> All right. I think I know how to roll my R's. Come on. So I think um everyone. You know, okay, so I recommended this book as the first Fireside Reads uh, to John and Robin uh, because they're all about some bias. And this book definitely, I read it a couple of years ago and it definitely opened my eyes to stuff I didn't even think about. So I thought this would be a good choice for their first book report. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's largely broken up into. what is it? Six sec- six sections um, where she discusses daily life, the workplace, design, as in literally the design of the world we live in, going to the doctor, public life, and 
when things go wrong, so post-disaster, that sort of uh, world, and how um, data bias in how we have studied the world and people and medicine um, has led to kind of this erasure of the woman uh, in how we react to things and how we consider things and how we treat things. Yeah. It's it's a good summary. Good uh, summary. That's an excellent summary. Fantastic. I can take many words, make few words real good. Win. Like sometimes it's the opposite also. (laughs) Well, I'm also very good at that too. So (laughs) the key is knowing the balance. The law of conservation of grammar. Some people tend to lean toward one side or the other. Balance is key. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So we kind of have some ideas of how we're going to discuss this book, like um, some of the things that we, you know, liked and some of the things that we didn't like and surprised us. So I don't know. Robin? And in true fireside fashion, Robin made a nice outline for us. And Savannah is the only one who filled in her part. (laughs) I didn't even fill in my own outline, y'all. But we do have like some time chunks in there. Good to go. I was like, did I was I did I write and I wasn't supposed to? No, like you were, absolutely no, you did it, it right. <laughs> you, it I was is, like, I could have partied last night instead of thinking about women. <laughs> no, it is I the mean, fact that I um apparently don't get to read books the way that I used to. So uh a lot of the time that I had intended to read intentionally and fill out the outline as I read got used with squeezing in sentences here and there between other uh, well, other women's work, other unpaid labor opportunities. I was going to say doing unpaid labor. Wasn't um, it? Yeah, actually, what our first question in the outline is, what are your top level thoughts on the book? And one of my first top level thoughts was, I am one of those women who doesn't give a whole lot of thought to the, the unpaid labor that mm-hmm. I do in my daily life. It's just kind of a part of my life. And so seeing that sentence repeated over and over and over again and having that consideration brought to the forefront in factoring in the way that we look at data like transportation data or workplace data, um, all these different ways that we see the world forced me to acknowledge a perspective that I generally tend to ignore. Exactly. That's exactly why I was like, all women need to read this book because yeah. you, you don't think about how you are not being thought about. <laughs> like that's Right. Or, or just the, the other obligations that we have on our time that other people don't like. One of the chunks of time that I had dedicated in my week to reading um, ended up I detangled some hair. I spent two hours detangling hair because my kid asked for me to do it alone and not have dad help. Granted, he's actually pretty skilled at it. He does a pretty good job detangling hair. Um but she wanted me to do it and she has sensory stuff. So she didn't want more than one set of hands in her hair. And the way that I detangle her hair works with her sensory stuff in the way that in a different way. So I needed to spend that time helping her with that project rather than what, well, my other unpaid labor, but slightly paid labor. This counts as a job. Um, you know, like it's just that that balance that I don't usually think about except I had to when I was reading this one. Yeah. John, what are your thoughts? Well, so real quick, unpaid labor is this concept of the, all of the work that goes into keeping the world going, Mm -hmm. um, that 
mainly falls on the shoulders of, uh, of women in our society. And when I say our society, uh, something that, uh, Ms. Perez did well, or Criado Perez, uh, is she broadened the scope of this beyond Western society. She folded yeah. a lot of cultures into this when she discussed things. Yeah. And that was a great perspective. <laughs> did, did, I did not. Okay. It was like, I wrote that um, in the outline, John, you biter. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I wouldn't steal from your unpaid labor. Um, so the. Uh, I, I enjoyed that because, or, or I respected that, I suppose is the better phrase for it, because it means that um, a lot of the patterns that she talks about, you can identify broadly across the globe. It's not going to be, uh, oh, that happens in America or that happens in uh, Britain or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, places where we might not be able to extrapolate this information more broadly. Um, but in doing so, she identified this concept of unpaid labor and how every every culture has this it's just kind of expected and how women by and large perform what is it 75 percent mm -hmm. somewhere in that neighborhood of the unpaid labor in our world which can be things like um traditionally quote-unquote domestic tasks like laundry and cooking and uh, Grocery maintaining the household, but also child care, also running errands, also elder care. Mm -hmm. um, these things that sort of just happen, quote unquote, but they don't. They don't right. happen. They take effort. And the only people who sort of fall into the trap of thinking that they just happen is me, is, me, is men. <laughs> it sort of just happens around men and there's not a lot of consideration given right. to the the execution of those duties i found myself thinking a lot about how much tia does around the house how much how much work she does how much i wouldn't be able to do if she didn't do these things um i mean it's largely thanks to her that I was able to read this book in time to record it um, because she took over driving us home from the track today, even though she was tired. So I could focus up and, and, and power through the last bit of this. Um, so yeah, I, I kept thinking about that and it forced me to consider that the, the concept I have probably not seriously evaluated that, you know, the division of labor in our household is, is relatively equal, um, which is how we would like it to be. But I, it, it really isn't at all. Um, and the things that I do contribute to the household probably aren't as uh, critical as the things she does. Right. So I, it did force me to have to uh, be more active in what I consider contributing and how I offload some of the burden on her moving forward, which is good. So. Yeah, that's nice. I'm glad that that perspective has kind of shifted a little bit for you. Yeah. I mean, she generally makes the case that, that this kind of unpaid labor, unseen labor is only known by, you know, the women who do it. And I, one thing that I do want to acknowledge is that this kind of work is 
known and understood by the people who do it. So in the situations where there are men who are trying to be more conscious of how much they contribute, or there are men who find themselves in caregiving roles, they are likely incredibly aware of this kind of balance of um, non-paid work responsibilities that fall on people. Um, whereas, you know, society as a whole or data as a whole doesn't always acknowledge it. In true fireside fashion, I do want to acknowledge that that's not everyone who falls into that category. That is the category as a whole. So um, a lot of times probably we're going to talk about men and women because that's the nature of the book and that's the juxtaposition that the uh, premise takes. But really inside of that, you have um, the people who identify with the experience that she allocates with women here and the people who identify with the experience that she is equating to men's experience here. And it's anytime that you go into a book that that kind of sets that oppositional balance, it's good to acknowledge at the jump that that's not everybody inside of those categories. Well, I can I agree with you, Robin, but I think it, especially in the medical portion of it, um, it is clearly defined by sexes like and there are differences for the sexes that um, are oppositional because of the yes. nature of medicine. So that's right. Like um, experiences in the household versus experience in biological um right medicine or yeah so i think that yeah that some of those are are necessarily oppositional or um, can't overlap but right that's not the case in everything yeah so my overall thoughts um since i did my homework um so yeah i loved this book because uh, uh i recommended it obviously um so it kind of what John and Robin both said, like it, it allowed, I didn't expect to be presented with such information about gender bias and research and development data because I have never thought about it. Um, so I really enjoyed learning about it. Um, and she presented the facts because it's, uh, I appreciate how she presented the facts because it wasn't dry or boring. It was uh, presented to me in a very like storytelling, um, again, not boring, which is nice with facts uh, kind of way. Um, and her literary uh, writing was good, which is uh, a plus. So uh, her research is extremely thorough, and um, it allowed me to consider how my life's impacted by a, a lack of understanding of how it is to be lived as a woman. Um, so it made me reconsider certain aspects of my experience and thoughts about how I could change um, my experience as a woman. So those are my top-level thoughts. So uh, what surprised you about the book, Robin? Oh, gosh. Um, there were quite a few things that that surprised me. I think a lot of the functionality, the the where she talks about um, the things like seatbelts. Seatbelts, yes. counter heights or transit not taking – like I never thought about transit as being um, gender biased ever, mm -hmm. especially public transportation. It never occurred to me. And the idea that something like a transportation system inside of a city – would work very well for men, but not for women. I'm punching my microphone here. Um, it, it was There was a lot of stuff in there that wasn't necessarily like shocking or surprising. There was a lot that I never thought about. Mm -hmm. That when I read it, I was like, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yep. Um, the lack of research on how chemical exposure 
affects women specifically. She yes. talked a lot about endocrine disrupting chemicals um, and how they can specifically affect women's hormone levels in ways that cause tons and tons of medical issues. Um, but the the standard research man, the standard representative of humanity is a 25 to 30 year old man mm-hmm. who weighs, I think it was like 70 kilos. Yeah. So something like 150 kilos, pounds. Um, when you think about how what percentage of the population is that, that's a very, very small percentage of the population. And the idea that that would extrapolate out to more than that is with what we know about science and medicine and bodies and the way that they work, that makes zero sense. And yet we still use that representative person as the basis for a lot of our guidelines and what we consider to be safe and unsafe. And um, that was probably the biggest surprise to me was that the research man. Yeah. The average. The average. Yeah. Joe, the average person is just that man, that specific man. Which would be yeah. John, that actually. Actually, <laughs> you, no, you, it would you, not he's be. even out of that. Because I am way more than 150 pounds. Thank you very much. And outside of the age range. The average for uh, men is probably around that uh, weight range globally on a global scale. It's pounds, yeah. 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 So, I am not the average man. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was thinking about that as, as Savannah was, or wow, as Robin was talking about it, is that like in the minorest of ways, the average male prototype has inconvenienced me like in airplanes i cannot fit it is difficult to fit on an airplane and i am not a morbidly obese person i am just larger than 150 pounds yeah and airplanes are i love flying but they are a miserable endeavor for me and that is like the smallest of inconveniences mm. compared Aww. to the things that are being discussed in this book <laughs> Sorry. So don't, no, no, aw, get your aw out of here. I was making a salient I point. I don't need your mocking tone. Jesus. Look, uh, no, my no, no, my no, status no, no, on no, Facebook no. about traveling on airplanes where I'm like, oh, people that, you know, their their knees are in my back, but they don't have to climb on counters every single time to get a glass. <laughs> I Well, yeah, let's talk about a bias. How about where, where uh, the average cabinet and counter height is yeah. uh, based on you know, moderately sized men. And that was actually one of the things that surprised me, I suppose, was how well she drew the line from uh, data that doesn't consider women is not gender neutral. Mm -hmm. It just de facto biases towards men. Yeah. And there's one of the chapters is basically dedicated to that, you know, drawing that that line out. And like for some reason, it just really clicked, uh, you know, as she was writing it. I was just like, oh, or as I was reading it, I was just like, oh, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. If you're not actively considering a population group, then all of your determinations are based on the data that has been gathered and as we have discussed many times the data that's been gathered historically has been focused around the people who were in power which were Mm -hmm. white guys you know so you can't you can't it's just like being it's just like the the problem with racism you can't be not racist you have to be actively Mm anti-racist you can't be 
gender neutral, you have to be actively considering certain disparities in between the sexes and what that means. Also, I just use sex and gender interchangeably. I am not familiar enough with how we are distinguishing those. It's something I need to research. So don't take that as like the biological versus sociological implication. That's not commentary on my part. That is just an old habit that I have yet to train out yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I will say, interestingly, a lot of this did not surprise me um, until I guess the, the two sections that surprised me most were uh, going to the doctor and the disaster. Those two parts are the, what really, really stood out to me. Um, going to the doctor in particular sat my ass down and handed me a lollipop and told me to think about what I've done. So I need to have some conversations <laughs> based on that reading um, alone. Well, interesting. yeah, that, that is interesting. Um, something that surprised me is uh, that women were left out of clinical trials for drugs for so long. So uh, women, uh, researchers don't want to take into consideration a woman's hormone changes uh, because obviously our menstrual cycle like changes um, how much estrogen and progesterone, progesterone that we have in our system. Um, so <clears throat> those variables in research are, can be too much um, for drugs. And so a lot of researchers don't want to take that into consideration. It makes it harder. Women are, are a harder group of people to gather information about. Um, so it, it surprised me. Like I understand it from a researching perspective and like, especially a research funding perspective, because if you start having to track all of the different variables, um, it's just, it, the research funding amount would be so much more. Um, but so I understand it, but it's still very disappointing. Like, um, yeah. like I understand the need for dedicated focus, but you would think the insane amount of difference between our hormones, between men and women would be enough of a reason to explicitly test medicine equally between the two sexes. And also like, we are not like, you know, a minority of the population, you know, on the global scale, I think there are actually more women than men. Um, fact check me, y'all. But I think it's like just just right over fifty two percent. So w if we have these women in who have medical problems and all these drugs are not being tested to work for their hormones, and like I don't know, that to me it's just that surprised me because I'm like we you know we matter. Oh, and on like a, a daily um. Interaction. So seatbelt designs uh, for safety, like uh, John and Robin were saying, that is a typical man that's about 150 pounds, certain amount of height. So when uh, I, I just assumed seatbelts were going to keep me safe. But reading this book, I'm like, ooh, it's it. I'm not that safe. It's, it hasn't been tested for my weight. It hasn't been tested for my height. They, So I'm on the uh, – women are on the – 
outer margin of safety in our daily life just when we're driving. Like that is to me, I'm like, whoa, like I didn't even think about that. Like I just assumed that I was safe, that I was taken into consideration. Kind of, you know, I just didn't, had never thought about it. So yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like until, um, and basically until I started lifting weights, I was for the most part, not heavy enough to trigger airbag activation in the front passenger seat of a car. Um, I'm a smaller than average woman, and I have always had to have modifications. Um, the, I need, need to get a new adjuster thing for my new car um, to make the seatbelt not hit me here under my chin, or um, I started driving with a booster seat. Like All of these things are just things that have been a part of my daily life, and I assumed that it was because I was smaller than average for a human, but now understanding that a lot of that is also because as a woman, I, my body parameters were not even considered. Um, it is, it's pretty frustrating. Yeah. I, mm, can we switch? Yeah. Let's switch some section orders. Yeah, go for okay. It. Yeah, do, do it. Angry what made next? you angry, okay. John? Remember it's, it, we Get are it. limited, um, in the angry. So like yeah. one, you know, yeah. just, <laughs> I got it. All right. That's okay. actually a good switch because because the the thing that I wish surprised me and the thing that made me angry are the same. So, yeah. great. Well, what made what what made me angry was actually um, the back to the medical part. I had always assumed, and this is why I I I need to like go back and reevaluate some conversations I've had. I've always assumed that at a certain level, the human body worked the same. And that's how medicine was able to function, right? Is that we have baselines for how the human body works. And we know that if we applied this stimulus, we're going to get this response. But the fact that some of the medications that we test just don't work in females Mm -hmm. at all, like they don't, they just don't trigger. I didn't even know that was a thing, but yeah, your, uh, <laughs> being a woman can mean that medicine just does not work for you. Mm-hmm. Not that it doesn't work differently. It just doesn't work. The cells don't activate and therefore the medicine is useless. Um, now a lot of those medications don't actually make it to trial though, because they hopefully discover that, uh, when they're testing it, um, But that was the other thing. A lot of medical trials are done with nothing but uh, male test subjects, uh, be that humans or mice. A Um, sea of dudes. Yeah. That's one of the chapter names. And it's just like how that made me mad. How could you purport to practice medicine? How could you purport to be doing things for the benefit and health of humanity when you're not even – making sure that what you're doing works for half of the people on this planet. That's bullshit to put it bluntly. Um, that, that pissed me off a great deal. Um, because it totally reorients, you know, all of the conversations that we have around, uh, around healthcare around medicine because like things that are advised things that should be typical things that are that should be common sense i can't they they're not anymore yeah i can't trust them to be i even even literally fitness advice i didn't know that uh 
training, uh, resistance training, stiffened, could stiffen uh, arteries in men, but it has the opposite effect in women, right? You'd think I did that there, there's certain universal constants, but there's not. And I'm mad that I never knew that. I'm mad yeah. that that wasn't something that was address, addressed like up front in any of the biology classes that I took. Yeah. And then when you think about how much of the, like, especially the fitness space exists online in an online community function and how many women's voices there are versus how many men's voices there are, how many, when you walk into a gym, how many female coaches are there versus how many male coaches are there? And then when you consider what is the quality of the education that those female trainers have received, so do they even understand how their body responds differently than a male that they're coaching? And I am grateful to exist in a space of um, some very incredibly educated women in the fitness space. And so I have voices that I know that I can trust and rely on for female specific training information. But like it, we, we live in a world where the solution to a problem is to hit the Google, right? Let me just go type that into Google. And when you're thinking about like, how can I lower my blood pressure quickly? Let's say you're having a high blood pressure episode. Uh, I was dealing with somebody a few days ago who was having a high blood pressure episode. And I was like, how can we get this down real fast? The difference between like there, there may be a marked difference between how we do that for a woman versus how we do that for a man. Or what should I take if I'm experiencing this? Or what should I talk to my doctor about, right? All of these things that we do to try and help us navigate our world, we go to the internet. And if all of that advice and all of that information is generalized and biased toward men, we don't even know how to start asking the right questions. So that covers your what surprised you and what or a fact oh, you no. would. <laughs> that was not oh, what no, you were angry just, about. Okay. <laughs> I was just also mad. I was piggybacking on the angry. There's okay. I'm just sharing. Uh, no, the there's thing several things that made me angry. So yeah, yeah. I'll do the same thing back, Robin. <laughs> so for the, what um, Okay, oh, go ahead. Go for it. Oh, I was just gonna mine s- doubles. <laughs> what um I wasn't really angry by any of it. It was and I feel like that's more of a I don't know. Nothing really made me angry. It more made me learn and curious about how to move forward. Um, So nothing in the book made me angry. What made me angry were my subsequent conversations with people with a lack of understanding about how women are, um, how we experience the world. And so Hmm. that was one of the reasons I wanted to have this book uh, be one of the book reports. Um, So our transgender podcast – that we had had about women's just experiences, this book made it like so much. That's why it was so influential to me is that I'm like, Uh there is a difference just from a a sex perspective. And this book had laid it all out. And so it not angry, just more of like, hey, I wish more people understood this. So um, I don't know, I didn't really get angry. Uh, you guys have a lot of anger, though. So uh, go for it, Robin. What made you yeah. angry? <laughs> well, okay. So the thing, the thing that made me angry was also the thing that I, I wish I was more surprised by. It just was like a, a reigniting of my anger. It was in the one of the first sections when she's talking about the transit systems and how they are not designed for women and how women have to conduct their day. And she started off talking about you know what we would consider um, typical 
industrialized societies. So the UK, the United States, Canada, France, that kind of stuff. But then when she transitioned to talking about, especially India, um, she was talking about the degree to which women are in danger of sexual assault just from trying to get to and from work. Um, and the number of cases, uh, it was it was getting to and from work and then also using the bathroom. Um, the number of women who are sexually assaulted because they don't have access to a safe bathroom. I like I I had to skim through the section and like skip ahead at some points because I was just so irately angry that women can't do something like go to the bathroom or get to and from work without having to worry about that particularly vile form of violence. Um but then again, I'm not surprised, right? Like we know, we know that this is the case and we know that, that sexual violence is, is executed against women in such disproportionate amounts. But I think what got me was the intersection between like, we could solve this, this part of it, at least we could take some of this off the table with very small changes and yet we haven't because either somebody doesn't know the data or someone's ignoring the data. Yeah. I just, I was, I was irately angry. It's interesting. Um, I think I want to leave my experience in Morocco uh, that I just had this last week for the bonus content for um, people to uh, listen to if they're our patrons. Um, but it ties in directly to, what Robin just covered, um, when I was over there. So yeah, I understand why that would make you angry. Yeah. But also there were things in the book that made me feel hopeful. Right. So, um, I, I mean, I'm happy to talk about mine. One of them that did make me feel hopeful was just, she does a very good job of documenting, um, people, companies, organizations, uh, states, countries that are actively trying to resolve these differences that are actively trying to disaggregate their data and implement um, female forward policies, women forward policies and procedures. Um, and so just her being willing to include the success stories in the book, I think, kept me from just um, doom spiraling mm -hmm. as I was going through all of this discouraging data, um, hearing about how these small policy changes have all but eradicated gender pay gaps or um, how how setting aside a chunk of parental leave that can only be used by men and will absolutely expire has increased the number of men who are willing to take parental leave after a baby's born um, or after they adopt a child. Um, like those kinds of things made me feel hopeful that there is actually a chance that we can take advantage of all this data that already exists and try to make things better. The fact this book exists and that she went through all the research and laid it out so well and makes very good arguments for all this stuff is what gave me hope. Because I'm like, it, this is a very good um, way for people to understand and to want to make changes at their own policy level that they can influence. And so we just got to get people to learn and be willing to hear about it. I don't know if this is weird or not, but... Uh what made me most hopeful, I think, in this book was the there's a section where she lays out 
how certain investments in things like uh, preschool, universal preschool, or early childhood education, that sort of thing, um, can directly lead to uh, benefits for the GDP. And when I saw how easy it was, because it, it only took her like two pages, mm-hmm. you know, when I saw how easy it was to draw the line from one to the other, I was like, that having numbers, being able to, to support those claims means that there's real chance for policy to be made and passed that can implement these things. Because if you can prove that a social program, a social benefit is financially and fiscally responsible, you kind of really eliminate a lot of the pushback against, quote unquote, the welfare state, that sort of thing. Um, and I think, I mean, it, it, it just it's common sense to me that if we want to grow as a nation, as a globe, right, if we want our economy to thrive, um, then taking these steps that have been identified and we can trace cause and effect to, you know, we do this, we get this growth. Um, and it's not it, that part not being a mystery just makes it that much more likely to happen. And and there are places that have enacted some of the policies like universal um, preschool, that sort of thing that uh, that she's talking about. Unfortunately, a lot of these things like uh, where uh, the income disparity has been eliminated or they have universal preschool or, or early childhood education, it's on small scales. Yeah. But... It's something. Step in the right direction. And All we can do is mm-hmm. take baby yeah. steps. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes, uh, or I think some of those changes rather were made in like New York City, which might be small scale, but that's a massive mm-hmm. city with all sorts of great data that can come from that that you can use to support implementing it over and over and over again and, and, and growing that process. So um, so that that's what gave me the most hope. It's like, we have solutions. Here's what's going to happen. Love it. So what do you think we can do uh, individually and as a whole to overcome um, the data bias for women? Do you want to go first, Robin? I, I don't, I, actually. I have thoughts. Okay, I'll go first. Um, you can go first. I filled out the out. All right. <laughs> I, I, know what, I know what my answer is. Um, I so deferring. I think on um, – I have wanted – more and more people to understand this perspective. And so for me individually, I have requested that people read this book. I've talked about it. I have uh, told all of my women friends, especially um, because it's easier to get them to care about themselves than it is men to care about women. And that's a broad statement and probably me being a jerk. But anyway, um, it's easier for women to (laughs) care about themselves. Um, And anyway, that's – I. In daily conversations, I can also draw from the knowledge of this book to try to, like, give people a little peek in the window of fact-based research about how women are impacted So uh, by data bias. And so bringing it up daily um, in my interactions with people and then also thinking about um, – uh, Thinking about how we can change policies uh, in our societal level, especially like Robin was saying, like the transportation and stuff like that. Like when these things get brought up to city council um, about like different train lines that they want to run certain places, you can have arguments with data 
based research, like this is why this would benefit this, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, and also thinking about women that I work with and being able to support them uh, because I work with so few, being able to support them in ways like um, the, goodness, the, what do they call them? Not the, it's not breastfeeding room, but like the lactation rooms and stuff oh, like yeah. that for women who want to, yeah, the lactation stations uh, for breastfeeding and like being able to pump the pumping rooms, like that kind of stuff. So allowing, like not forgetting that women are experiencing a part something that they need to be supported by and so thinking about what i can do to influence that in my own workplace so uh, robin john yeah i mean just that's kind of where i was headed with it too this um the best thing that we can do is make people aware and make ourselves aware when we're encountering something like that because um another way that we can advocate for change is to choose things, choose products, vote, vote with our dollar. I hate that term, but to actively choose to engage with things that consider us as, um, as women in their design to actively choose things that are right-sized or to ask the question of, of your doctor, is this going to affect me differently because this, um, has research been done on this particular medication in women, um, in women my size, right? The the more that we can ask questions and advocate for ourselves, I think the more of a squeaky wheel mm-hmm. we'll become if half the population starts asking questions and asking people to account for information that they will then have to admit that they don't have. That then forces people to confront that, hopefully forces people to confront that lack of information and um, gives them some sort of a, an impetus to pursue that information because one point that she makes uh, fairly often in the beginning of the book, especially is that very, very likely people are not intentionally disregarding women. Um, Your doctor is probably not intentionally disregarding your perspective, but the information that's available to them is not based on you as a patient. And so if we can ask them questions and make them aware of that, they may then become more aware of the fact that they were not given the information that they need to treat you well. Most doctors are, they're doctors for a reason. They want to treat their patients well and they want to help them. And so if they become aware of the fact that they don't have that kind of information, um, I would like to believe that they will go out and pursue it and find it. And that can, that demand for information can then increase the likelihood that that kind of research will be done. So improving the world we live in. Hmm. Um, first of all, more people need to listen to fireside breakdowns. Obviously, obviously, obviously that would solve so many of the ills of this world. Best podcast in the world. Everyone's saying it. Um, Make podcasting. Great again. I, <laughs> I would say like it's, it is about more than just knowing the information and you've both touched on it, but I would say you need, we all need to be active in application of the knowledge, right? You can't just wait for a bill to come up 
that you could vote on using this information. You can't wait for a discussion to happen um, or a town hall to happen that you can, you know, therefore utilize this information in. Um, you need to, we all need to start those conversations, start those bills, write those laws, which by the way, don't know if everybody knew this, but like private citizens can submit laws mm -hmm. to be considered. So you can actually write or draft a law and then, you know, pass it to your congressperson uh, if you want to go all the way to the top and, and they can, you know, start, you can start discussions about, you know, supporting that law and how do you get it in and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it, it it is a, a call to activism, if you will. It, you cannot be passive in this world and expect the world to orient itself in a better way yeah. based on what you have learned. You have to take the knowledge and you have to go out and you have to apply the knowledge and push for these change and, and actively make it happen. God, but um, we're already doing 75% of the unpaid labor. Like We don't really have a lot of well, time to like... <laughs> that leaves room for 25% more. I'm just saying. Uh, no. John. <laughs> Considering that the listening demographic of this podcast skews male. Oh, uh, fantastic. Oh, do they? It does. It does. Great. Just slightly. Um, yeah, no, that would be a horrible idea if I actually believed the thing that I just expressed. But I don't. It was a joke. Out uh, of context. So. Yes. Please do not take me out of context and get me canceled again. Um, wait, I've never been canceled. I'm going to launch into the next part because this is I'll, I'll forget the thought if I don't um, that what I wanted to talk about and that's that we didn't mention so far is that this book actually highlights sort of one of the subtextual themes of it. Um, the incredible difference between equality and equity mm -hmm. in the world. And, you know, I'm all for uh, uh, equality in society, obviously, but. It's not enough to just be like, hey, everybody should have the same opportunities um, because sometimes like the, the underlying infrastructure doesn't exist to allow people to actually take advantage of those opportunities. By which case I mean, er, by which I mean taking the healthcare example, because I just cannot get over it uh, back into consideration, like women live longer than men right? Although that gap is narrowing. Um, but one of the key things she mentions in this book, and this one I did know, um, is that women don't have more quote unquote useful years uh, than men do. They just happen to have a longer period of time where they are living with some sort of permanent disability or um, illness that they're managing than men do. Um, so if we really want equity, we need to make sure that women are, like I said, getting the outcome in healthcare that men are getting yeah. as well. That's what equity is. It's not enough to just be like, you can both go to the doctor, men and women. It's you can both go get treatments that actually work for you. That's equity. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And that's that was that's all that's the theme I keep coming back to in this. Robin, do you have anything yeah, else that's, you want to that's cover? really well illustrated in uh, the section where she's talking about pensions, especially in 
countries that have um, nationalized pension systems and how in some places you have to earn a certain threshold to qualify for pension payments, right? So um, for a percentage of your earnings to get lumped into your pension that you will Mm -hmm. earn once you retire. Um, But men tend to work one job that makes up the entirety of their earnings, whereas women, because of their unpaid labor responsibilities and their caring responsibilities, are more likely to work two or three jobs that make up the totality of their income, but also not to earn enough at any one of those jobs to qualify for pension earning, right? So um, you have an entire group of women who is working as much or more at paid labor than their male counterparts, but who are earning a significant amount less in their pensions, which when they then do retire and have those more, the, the longer lifespan, but fewer useful years, they have less uh, income to help them care for themselves when they are experiencing those medical outcomes. And so she does a really good job of saying, look, everyone in that country can qualify for a pension if you earn this particular amount at your job. But because the information doesn't take into consideration that women are likely to work more than one job and it doesn't allow for lumping of your total income, um, the there is equality in access, but there is not equity in outcome. So that's a really good I don't know if she brings this up because, like I said, I haven't read this in a while and I've heard this since then. So I don't know if it's covered in the book explicitly. But additionally, with stuff like that pension, um, if a woman has a baby and goes on maternity leave because her body has been torn open in multiple different ways, um, (laughs) that that time doesn't count towards and the time and the money doesn't count towards that pension totality either. And so we are Mm -hmm. automatically at the risk of less overall earnings based off of that loss of time. And yeah, um, so I don't know if she she, does talk about that. Okay. Yeah. She talks about it in a couple of different ways, not only Mm -hmm. for the pension, but also just like overall earnings in your life and how um, it, it, how some women aren't guaranteed or in some places, women aren't guaranteed their position back after they go on maternity yeah. leave. Um, so they take leave. And then if there's a job waiting for them when they get back, it may be at two pay grades lower mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you hello, so, America. You have people who say, well, they need workers. It shouldn't matter. And I'm like, well, but you're not taking in the humanity aspect of the fact that our society needs to have children and you can't just be a giant capitalist and say fuck people for not working their jobs they need to start back at the bottom that doesn't take into account society and you know having a healthy um citizenship anyway yeah yeah that was one of the thoughts that i had that's related uh, to this book uh near the end i was just like yeah um there's this big panic about Okay, it's not a big panic, but there's a panic about uh, how uh, birth rates are dropping, right? Um, And America as a rule is getting older. And all I could think of when I was reading this was like, well, duh. Yeah. People, we can't afford to have families. Like women literally cannot afford in any sense of the word to add a child into the equation on top of everything else that they have to do. So, yeah. Yeah. Women are both delaying when they choose to have a child, uh, if they're fortunate enough to do so, um, and also just not because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. 
that actually dovetails into something that she that we didn't talk about in the outline, but she does a good job of covering, and that is time poverty. Um, we, in our discussions, even on this podcast, talk a lot about financial poverty um, and privilege, but we don't talk a lot about time poverty and how there is a huge disparity in the amounts of um, recreational time, the time that you have to choose what you want to be doing um, between all, all kinds of demographic groups of people, but especially between men and women because of the balance of unpaid labor and caring work that women globally tend to do. Um, and again, it, was some, it wasn't something that I had thought much about up to this point. I had heard the term before, but thinking about time poverty as an actual state of poverty, I think is an important way that I'm going to change my perspective going forward because I tend to balance my perspective on my life based on um, do I have enough financial resources? Do I have enough resources to exist comfortably? And I don't often consider, do I have enough time to exist well or to do the things that I want to do? Um, I mean, I do have ADHD and well, uh, relax is a very specific category of things for me um, because I do have ADHD and uh, people joke with me all the time that I just manufacture more time if there's something that I want to do. Um, But I understand that physiologically that is not always an option it may feel like that to me in the moment but um if i do want to have useful years at the end of my life then i probably need to pay very much closer attention to the amount the the degree to which i'm willing to overextend myself even if i'm doing things that i enjoy basically i gotta figure out how to stop being responsible for these children that i made (laughs) Just kidding. I love them. You just got to wait them out. Uh, and they're so I, the I joke about that now because they are I mean, they're teenagers. They are so close to actual independence that it's OK for me to make that joke now because they need me so much less than they have. And they need me less every single day. Um, so it, I'm not I don't people make that face when I say things like that. And I'm like, no, listen, this is where we need to be. Um, no, I get it. Everybody's OK with this arrangement. I, I totally yeah. I'm totally fine with this arrangement um, because they are turning out to be really awesome human beings. But well, they're your kids, of course. Listen, listen. (laughs) Well, that time um, poverty. Yeah, that kind of wraps up our, you know, at least the regular people content. If you want bonus content, you can sign up for patron patreon um so you can get some extra story time i'm going to talk about morocco and specifically in this context so um yeah visit us on firesidebreakdowns.com um did anyone pick out good news i did i have some good news fantastic and is irrelevant uh, Colorado is getting ready to exempt diapers and menstrual products from sales tax. Yay! Um, this is a huge way in which women carry an extra financial burden um, because very often we are responsible for purchasing the products that are required to care for the children that we birth. Um, but then also we have 
you know, functions of our actual bodies that require extra investment in um, products that men do not have to invest in. And the question of the taxation of those items um, has been a topic of conversation recently. And Colorado, on beginning Wednesday, Colorado will no longer charge a sales tax on diapers, incontinence products, and menstrual products, thanks to a new law that was signed by Governor Jared Polis earlier this year. Um, Round of applause. Go Colorado. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it was a bipartisan law. Um, People on both sides of the aisle supported it. According to the Women's Foundation of Colorado, individuals spend about $15 per month on period products. For diapers, families pay close to $75 a month per child. Um, So the state estimates that legislation will save Coloradans a combined $9.1 million annually. And I feel like... In that case, um, they should have specifically called out women, not just Coloradans. In that case, um, but after reading this book, I can't, I can't say that I disagree. Um, I'm gonna take us out of here this time because I got the the hard copy of the book. I hope it's it's probably backwards no, on everybody's that's, screen, that's right. but you're good. It's right for you. It's backwards for me. Um, Thanks, Google. This is Invisible Women. Uh, so I think this gets, uh, three recommendations across the board here. Yeah. What if we, on a, uh, on a scale of, of one being never read this, 10 being everyone should read this 10. What's your number? Solid 10. Solid 10. I'm at a seven and a half, but <laughs> that is, that's style. It's no, it's stylistic. It's not because the information is not valuable. It's because, um, this book was really hard for me to get through with the way that my brain works. Um, and if other people's brains work like my brain, it will take you longer. It may be harder to digest the information, which means that you may retain less of it. So um, if you pick this book up and it's not working for you, keep looking into this kind of thing. But I will acknowledge that it may not work for everyone's brain. So seven and a half, eight out of 10. Good information. Stylistically, I might have made different choices. She would have had lots of highlighters and cool colors all throughout it. If I wasn't going to give this book to somebody, also, I would, would have like, highlighted it. I just want to call out the super cool cover. It's really cool. I think that's so stinking clever. Because they, yeah, the yeah, women are literally the invisible. The women yep. are literally invisible on it. Yeah. yeah. Super cool. Um, anyway, yeah. I definitely... Th- I definitely say read it. Everybody should. If you are a man, it will make you a better man. Seriously. Um, And if you are a woman, it will make you a more aware woman of all of the things that you're already aware of. Um, I'm sure it is a it is a great tool to have in anybody's pocket. We will be back later (laughs) one week, one week from today with another conversation of extreme import yes. uh, until that time uh, everybody thank you so much for listening to us uh, we hope you're having a wonderful week and please take care of each other <laughs> <laughs>